Welcome back to Eldritch Girl and this is 13th part 6 which is uh, chapter 3 parts 2 and 3. Um, so <laughs> I know this is getting confusing um, but yeah there are only 13 chapters so we're gonna have to break it up like this so you know just keeps you on your toes. Um, this is a Katie section and a Wes section. The Katie section um, just has some content warnings for uh, organs in jars, um, a little bit of uh, implied cannibalism, and um, the usual toxic family relationship, abduction, that kind of scenario, um, continuing, ongoing. Uh, Wes, um, Wes's section is the continuation of part five, so you have the aftermath of his coerced drug trip. Um, he, the whole point of view is from his very scrambled, um, drunken slash, uh, high perspective. Um, and the background to it is a snuff film show. So a lot of gore, amputation, um, dismemberment, that sort of thing going on in the background casually. Um, hope you enjoy it. Uh, Sasha is the cameo character in this, but again, Sasha is the one that has her own spin-off series. Um, and in this section, so chap uh, the part three, um, you're going to meet, there's a reference to a guy who is wanking off to Sasha, basically, that Wes notices and is like, oh yeah, he's quite fit, I would. Um, and that guy um, is... <laughs> is a character in Eldritch Girls Just Want to Have Fun and that is not my character, okay? So that's a reference to a character that is created by Ezra Arndt, um, who is my co-writer for um, Eldritch, Eldritch Girls Just Want to Have Fun. So I just want to put that out there, that the, the character I'm describing with the eyeliner and the bad attitude and the, um, <laughs> and the fetish um, isn't mine. Um, so that's Ezra's and that's Tosh Haraldson. So without further ado, um, good luck with <laughs> good luck with this part. Um, it's yeah, it's just fun. I hope you enjoy it. Thirteenth, chapter three, part two. Ricky was as good as his word. Katie got everything back: her case untampered with, her handbag with nothing taken from it. All her money was there, her cards, her phone. Katie pulled her memory foam pillow out of the case first, her handbag contents scattered over the bed. She cuddled the pillow and breathed in the lavender spray on its lilac cover, texting Rachel with one hand. He'd been right about Wes, no calls, no texts. Had he deleted them to make Wes look bad? Rachel, on the other hand, had been trying to get hold of her since 10 o'clock the previous night and had left voicemail after voicemail. Rocket had called three times, her stomach flipping as she saw his number repeated. Alex hadn't called at all, not that he would now that he had a girlfriend, not that she cared. He hadn't messaged her at all since the last time he'd asked for nudes and she hadn't replied. She didn't want to call Rachel back, thinking Ricky might be listening. The room had no radiator or storage heater, but it was a mild day and not freezing. She bundled herself up in the wool blanket, pressing her back against the wall. To her surprise, the wall was warm like pressing up against a lukewarm pipe. Lucky for her, the bed was positioned here, she thought, and leaned her head against the paint. It felt strangely soft, 
as if the plaster were coated in a thin patina of velvet skin. Katie tried to send her reply to Rachel, but it wouldn't go through. She tried three times, but each time it failed. The signal was full. Shit! Katie tried calling, and the phone beeped at her. Shit! Her battery drained from 60% to three in a second. No, no, fuck! The phone died and refused to turn back on. There was nowhere to plug in her charger. Katie jumped off the bed and searched the whole room, but there were no power outlets. How was that even possible? She moved the bed out to make sure and found one hidden behind a metal grate. Someone had gone to a lot of trouble to hide it, to make the room fit for some antique aesthetic she couldn't figure out. What was this meant to be, Victorian nostalgia? She needed a small screwdriver to work it free. Rocket always carried a tiny one for his reading glasses. He was always prepared for everything. Katie thumped the grate in frustration. She'd never laugh at Rocket again. She moved the bed back and settled back against the wall, but it had gone cold. Katie put her pillow behind her and cuddled into the blanket, wondering what to do. As if in answer, the floorboard near the door creaked and her door opened a crack. Katie grabbed her charger and her phone and slid off the bed. Hello? It felt stupid saying hello to what was clearly an empty room, an empty corridor, but the hairs pricked up on her arms. The house was quiet. She sidled over to the window, away from the open door, just in case. Her cousin was outside, investigating grounds as if looking for something. She watched him, a faceless grey figure intent on poking around near the wall, and glanced back at the door. If he was out the front, maybe she could get out through the back. She dashed to the bed and shoved her things into her handbag, the important stuff she couldn't leave, and tore out of the room. The corridor was quiet, carpet muffling her thudding feet. She got to the grand staircase, bounding down the steps two at a time into the spacious tiled entrance hall, but didn't bother with the front doors. Turning left, she ran past the living room and down a corridor of smoke-damaged oak panels, turning right at the end where a handsome modern long-case clock stood, ticking out the seconds before Ricky came back in and jogged down the steps into the kitchen. The back door was locked and wouldn't open, even when she shot back the bolts. The key must be around here somewhere, in a drawer, it wasn't that she had a death wish. It was the principle of it, of being held under duress, of being bullied into agreeing to something she didn't want to do. She could go and stay with Rachel instead, if Ricky would protect her while she was in town. She would stay almost anywhere as long as it wasn't at her parents' place or this creepy old house with her mad overbearing cousin. She heard the front door slam. Katie cursed inwardly and tried another door, the one connecting the kitchen to the old servant's corridor at the back of the house that Ricky had pointed out to her when he'd given her suitcase back. He had given her a brief tour, and his possessive pride in the place had struck a wrong note with her and made her uncomfortable. Maybe it was the way he'd made it sound like he was talking about a person. The servant's corridor was now partitioned into a utility room where she could do her laundry, but beyond this were the back stairs and an entrance to the cellar complex under the house, via a trapdoor to the old coal cellar. Katie assumed that Ricky had told her that too, and she'd absorbed it without really listening. When, though? She couldn't shake the shivery feeling he hadn't told her what was down there, but rather something else had whispered it in the eddy of cold air sliding by the nape of her prickling neck. There's a tunnel. Katie's legs stiffened, arms tense and vibrating with fear and cold. How did she know that? Was that her own thought, or did it come from somewhere else? Mistress? She heard her cousin's mocking voice and tugged the trapdoor open. 
He could only be calling for her, but he'd never called her that before and she didn't like it. A light came on below her, revealing brick steps and a cavernous space. She headed down, hoping he wouldn't come after her yet, hoping she'd find some way out. The coal cellar led via a low archway on one end to a small honeycomb of chambers beneath Fairwood House, including one that had once been a 13th century crypt belonging to the monastery on that site before the Reformation. Her gran had worked at the house once. She'd told her that. She must have done. Yes, she must be remembering stories Gran had told her from before Gran and her sisters had upset someone and they'd all been banished from the house. Gran had a shrine in the cellar of her own cottage, of course, but she never taught Katie how to use it, and it wasn't as powerful as the pendle stone was reputed to be. She wasn't even sure where the pendle stone was or what it looked like. She just knew it was now a part of the house and her bloodkin were barred from accessing it. Well, all but two of them. The cellar, lit by a naked bulb, was sparsely furnished with trestle tables against one wall and a pile of blankets in one corner. It looked like a workshop. There were knives laid out by a whetstone, a leather pouch spread open with leather working tools and needles inside, and the cores of the stains on the floor were better left unimagined. The jars arrested her attention. Ricky, she presumed, who else would have done it, had erected the kind of freestanding metal shelves her dad had in the garage, and filled them with mason jars of preservative fluid and human organs. Of course he had. She wasn't sure what else she'd expected to find. The books were more of a surprise. Cousin Ricky had never been to school as far as she knew. He'd grown up wild, doing whatever he wanted. She'd assumed that at some point someone had taught him to read, or that he'd figured it out by looking at signs and bus timetables, but it hadn't occurred to her that he actually read books. They couldn't all be his. The eclectic mix reminded her of the trophies her dad kept in the garage, rings and friendship bracelets and gummy bands all thrown together in boxes, all belonging to girls who looked like her. Cousin Seth collected teeth. Wes had liked human kneecaps before he'd started screwing around outside the family and grown inconveniently attached to humans. There were kids' books among copies of Hemingway and Kafka, and some modern stuff that looked like contemporary chiclet from the covers. Some, she assumed, must have belonged to his victims. She knew he was into human sacrifice and all that shit. Everyone said so. She pulled out a fragile copy of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and threw the looking glass and what Alice found there and flipped it open, only to find For Margaret, Love Auntie Rose on the inside page. She snorted and stuffed it back. There were some old books, really old, pages yellow and crumbling at the edges, but a cursory glance revealed cuttings of newspapers from the 1940s and a spidery handwriting she didn't recognise. The name on the inside of the front leather cover was faded, but she could make out Nathan Porter. These belonged to Grandpa Nathan, the human occultist too horrified by his own spawn to hold his kids, even when they were human passing. Katie had never met him. He and Grandma Deirdre had died in the last cull at the hands or jaws of Deirdre's little brother, Hector Wend, the first thirteenth. Nathan Porter's notes were mainly in shorthand, with doodles of strange symbols and odd landscapes and moon phases in the margins. She flicked through one, wondering if there was something interesting in it, but was interrupted. Looking for something, are we? She spun around, sending a jar flying and a book thumping to the floor. A thick tendril flew out and caught the jar before it hit anything and withdrew. Ricky was standing with his hands in his pockets, watching her as if he'd been there the whole time. He retrieved the jar as his tendril wound back inside his head, the jar's contents sloshing about unpleasantly. 
bored, are you? Katie fumbled for a book. Just, um, looking around. You can have that if you want. There was a disconcerting slurping sound as the other tendrils disappeared into the back of his head and the smack of large puckered lips. Katie wrinkled her nose. Cheers. It's crap. Katie turned it over and read the title. You think Dickens is crap? Don't you? Ricky gave an easy shrug and strolled over to the shelf, replacing the jar. Is that a heart? Katie asked, watching. Of course it is. Got ventricles and everything. She rolled her eyes. Is that, like, a human heart? Yeah. Katie stepped closer to examine one of the jars, determined to show him she wasn't scared. A chill in the air made her shiver at the wrong moment, and she caught his distorted grin reflecting in the curved glass side. The eyeball in the jar was suspended in fluid, its optic nerve trailing like a drunken jellyfish. The shade of brown looked horribly familiar. Is this... She frowned, glancing back at him over her shoulder. Is this a porter eye? He giggled, a childish high-pitched sound that didn't suit his usual low, gruff register. They're all singing a different tune now, ain't they? Lining up to give me what I don't even need. She plucked it out herself. Give it to me in a box. Nice of her. He grinned and stroked the wall of the cellar as if fondling a pet. Katie found herself drawn to the bricks, staring at them as if something were going to happen. She clutched the Dickens novel, recalling with a sickening flash the new bandage sported by her father's favourite sister. Why do you... What's all this for? Ricky dug his shoulder into the arch, rubbing his head against it, and smiled. Want to try one? What? Easier to show you than it is to tell you. Katie blinked. What am I supposed to do with it? Eat it. Fuck off! It's fine, it's like jelly. No! He snorted. You're going to be crunching our kin to pulp soon anyway. No point in being squeamish about it. Katie tapped the side of the jar before she could stop herself, drawn to it in a morbid tug of curiosity. That doesn't mean I want a taste of them beforehand. I can show you how to get stuff out of them, Ricky said, cocking his head. How to make connections between you and them, you know? Eyes is powerful. You can see what they've seen, what they are seeing. In my case, of course, what they will see, but that's not for you. His full lips twitched. Two out of three ain't bad. Katie chewed at the inside of her cheek, frowning. Something tugged at the back of her mind, but the accompanying cinch of her chest made her shy away from it. A lot of things since Grand died were a blur, including the night Katie found her. Dilated pupils and floating diamonds of glittering disco lights whirled through her mind, doing lines at the Rorschach with her friends, eyes reflecting and multiplying in mirror facets all around her. Grand's eyeless skull, brains gone, mouth gaping at her feet. No, he didn't. He couldn't have. She was too much for him on his own. She must have been, surely. He didn't look strong enough to kill Gran. A chill spread over her back as she realised she didn't really know what he could do. She turned her back on the jars, grasping for something that would make her feel more in control. How is this going to help me? If you want to control the list, you need to know why they're on it, don't you? Katie bit the inside of her cheek so hard she drew blood and sucked at it until it filled her mouth with its coppery tang. She dropped her eyes to the book she was still holding, focusing on the restful purple of the cover, a river at dusk, a rowing boat off-centre. 
Ricky eyed her with some dark shade of satisfaction. Do you want to learn what they say about you when you're not there? How much power they think you've got? What they're planning on doing to protect themselves if or when the time comes? Katie hadn't considered that last part. In her dreams, resistance was futile. They were ground beneath her claws, chewed to pulp, and she woke fighting through their ribbons of flesh. They can't stop me. Her voice was dull and flat in the cellar, bricks deadening the sound. He shrugged. Look, it's up to you, but I mean it. I'll teach you how. He eyed her. I ain't wasting anyone decent on you yet. Show me you can stomach it first. Down in one, it's easy. Katie's belly flipped, imagining the jelly bursting in her mouth, the stringy thread of flesh scratching its way down her throat like undercooked spaghetti. God, no, I can't. Fair enough. I might have a go at Uncle Danny up there. Ricky nodded at her shelf he was too short to reach. Katie glanced up. I'll leave you to it. Yeah, you do that. Don't mind if you want to watch, but you suit yourself. Katie retreated back up the cellar steps, shaking her head. I've got this to read. She waved the novel at him. Thanks, though. Sarcasm was lost on him. He turned his back on her, treating her to a full view of the puckered skin at the back of his shaven head, the flat tapeworm lips which parted with a wet suck and opened onto nothing except writhing, questing knots of carnivorous coils. Katie's stomach churned up a queasy bubble of vomit into her mouth, and she retched but held it in. She ought to be used to things like that, but worm-like things still got to her. She couldn't stomach her brother Liam's changes either, the way those anemone-like fronds, pale and slick like the eye stalks of a snail, peeked out from his armpits and occasionally protruded from his short-sleeved shirts. She wondered if she'd be able to handle her own when the time came. She knew it was what her body was somehow designed to do, like getting pregnant or having periods, but the whole process was painful, or so her sister Kimberly claimed, and you never knew what would happen. Kimberly's quad, Nicole, had delighted in telling the triplets they would get something awful, but they got off fairly lightly, and Dave had gotten exactly what he wanted. They spent most of their time joined at the hip by choice anyway. Katie didn't need to be told hers would be awful. She made it back into the warmth of the kitchen, a space that felt far more welcoming than the rest of the house, and made herself comfortable in the cushioned chair at the end of the table. She could charge her phone later. Right now, she wanted to lose herself in fiction, some story about how awful people were, but how it all came right for the most of the good ones in the end. Or so she hoped. Frustration spoiled her concentration, though. Why hadn't Wes called to check on her? Where the fuck was he, the useless twat? Oh, fuck him. Katie opened the book and dug in to spite read. Chapter 3, Part 3 Ideas sparked, half-formed outside his brain. He didn't think them, only watched them pop into existence like planets, a whirl of words and images, shifting patterns of colours and sounds. Some were about his family, and they were spiky, dark, complicated. He couldn't get too near them. He took a stroll through the bursting nebulae and danced in the rain of sparks. Numbers flashed in front of him as he wandered through a set covered in blood and raining screams. He raised his arms to the ceiling and danced in it, time standing still and the clock showing three different times all at once. 1528, 2253, 1812. 
There were welcoming thoughts popping up to protect him as he wandered through the night sky, pornographic, sensuous, amorphous, abstract, bubbly molecules bouncing around, flashing tits and arse, begging to be chased. Cute little bastards. The words formed in front of his eyes with firefly neon flashes. He waved his hand through the letters, blurring them into constellations that arced over him in alien skies. He saw nothing but black outcrops of rock, the reek of dead fish and salt on the air, and somewhere up ahead of him pulsed a red, sticky cocoon. He knew it was wearing off when they started to happen inside his head again. Everything started to collapse, his universe telescoping around him and sucking back into the confines of his skull, the world rushing through his eyes as if his pupils were tunnels and his skull was hollow and sucking everything in like a black hole. The blindfold came off at the start of the come down, brilliant light stabbing into his eyes and yanking him into a different dimension, one with depth and height, making him dizzy with the defined points of reference. It took a while for them, who were they, to calm him down, before he realised he was in some sort of warehouse, factory, something disused by the look of the rusty pipes, somewhere old and forgotten. Fuck you, Uncle Barry. There was a period of blankness, memory loss, he supposed, but only in retrospect when he was sat with a drink in his hand laughing at a joke. There was an empty bottle of champagne he vaguely recognised. Fragments of memory slotted back into the broken jigsaw. A word of welcome in an American accent he couldn't place. A bucket of ice. People in masks bound together by deliciously illicit anonymity and a top-notch security team. He felt good, though. Really good. Top of the world good. Was that the silver lining or the champers? Silver lining, surely. Champagne didn't feel like this. He could feel every individual gorgeous sparkling bubble in his brain bouncing off his synapses. Fuck me, Uncle Barry, you absolute legend. The chair was comfortable. Leather. He could lounge in it, pretend he was a perfectly respectable pervert like the rest of them. Definitely wasn't rat-arsed with a head full of firecrackers. Sitting at a polished black table with silver service and a vegan platter in front of him, sipping the last of his champagne, Wes relaxed in front of the two-way mirror, watching his burlesque-costumed cousin amputate a man's leg with a chainsaw. She'd started and he hadn't even noticed. He glanced at the digital clock display. Online viewers had bets on how long it would take the guy to bleed to death. Did I place a bet? he asked too loudly and got shushed by some American couple dressed for the fucking opera. Ah, piss off. He found a betting slip in his pocket, looking for his cigarettes. He looked at it. He'd bet 15 minutes and 28 seconds. That seemed awfully precise. Then he looked at how much he'd put on it. 500 grand? Shit. Not exactly pocket money. His sisters, Lucy and Kirsty, identical down to their clothes, Venetian masks and makeup, except for their oppositional colour palette, giggled to each other about the performance and Kirsty's work gossip and finished each other's sentences. One of them had asked him about Katie. He couldn't remember what he'd said. The Americans were applauding for some reason, their offensive enthusiasm grating through his throbbing frontal lobe. Why couldn't they let him watch a guy get off in peace? Or at least masturbate to it in dignified throaty abandon like a normal fucking person, like that guy over there. Cut glass features, swooping hair, killer eyeliner and a bad attitude. Wes definitely would. He turned his attention back to his cousin. The chainsaw got swapped for a dentist's drill. This was more his thing, not that he'd admit he missed it. 
He sat a little straighter as Sasha teased her audience, not to mention the man tied to the operating table with the drill bit. Oh shit, go for the knees, sexy girl. He hoped she knew he was watching, that she'd remember, do something just for him. Why would she? He hadn't spoken to Sasha in years. Why did it matter now? What the hell is wrong with me? You're having fun. See, I told you he would. Kirsty in glamorous red and yellow to Lucy's sumptuous blue and green, mercifully still physically separate from her middle triplet, fluttered false eyelashes across the table. Uncle Barry's silver things are shit, by the way. Wes blinked. What? Lucy sniffed. Oh yeah, they make you really tingly and giggly, but they don't last long. You didn't see your own thoughts? Sasha distracted them by driving the drill straight into her victim's patella, and Wes grunted with sudden surprised pleasure as the man on the next table came. Lucy and Kirsty, to Wes's infinite disgust, joined the Americans in applause. More champagne arrived, along with a bottle of still mineral water imported from the Alps, probably, or some such bullshit. He'd stick to the champers, thanks. The clock was ticking. So the drugs don't work, he quipped. He was about to lose 500 grand. Lucy gave him a pitying look. What were they supposed to do? Are you actually enjoying this? Wes sighed. It was a trap, not a question. Yeah, yeah, that bit, the knee bit, that was excellent. And we don't hang out enough. And um, I'm pretty drunk. He poured himself another glass because that was looking like the best idea at the moment and wondered if he fell in the door at five o'clock how much his partners would really mind on a scale of one to livid. And that's good. So, yeah, of course. Lucy was only partly convinced. Are you sure you don't know where Katie is? Kirsty asked. Mum's going spare. She's always looked up to you, didn't she call or anything? Lucy leaned across the table. If you know where she is, you have to tell us. She's going to change soon, you know. Has something already happened to her? He forced himself to focus, concentration sluggish. Already? What do you mean by that? We voted on it, remember? Lucy's lips gleamed below her mask. Uncle Marcus wants her gone, never mind what the soothsayer says. Didn't think he'd had the balls to go against his god, Wes muttered. Kirsty squealed, distracted by the show. Ooh, she's changed drill bits. That took the heat off him for a while. At 15 minutes and exactly 28 seconds, the heart monitor beeped in warning and the man's vitals no longer registered. Wes crowed, did a complimentary line off the table, started on the water and ordered a coffee. His sisters fawned over him. The sulky yank with eyeliner stumbled up to flirt but stopped when he realised Wes was Sasha's cousin. Another bottle of champagne popped near his ear and Wes exulted in sheer relief and adrenaline. All the same, the number nagged at the back of his mind. He drowned it with the rest of his champagne and returned to the water like a good boy. He didn't place the next bet but he wrote down a time on a napkin, the first numbers that came to mind, numbers he remembered from his trip. 2253. Sasha, resplendent in a fishnet body stocking and blood-splattered platform shoes, performed a flirty burlesque dance with the tools of her trade while the next victim was wheeled in, conscious and screaming. Fucking hell, Sash. We used to dress up and play in Wonderland together, remember? Those are the days. Wes concentrated on sobering up, watching the clock. There was no way he'd be right a second time. The girl was declared dead 22 minutes and 53 seconds in. Bang on. Fuck. Wes asked for a chamomile tea. 
He tapped his foot against the table leg until Lucy kicked him, patience expired. The third victim was wheeled in, the last one for this set. Wes wrote down a random number that came to him, glittering at the edges. He knew it because he remembered it, like deja vu except in reverse. Wait, did that make sense? Perfect sense. What good was a memory that only worked backwards? 1812, like the overture. Yeah, he was cultured, he knew Beethoven, just because he hadn't grown up with it didn't mean it wasn't for him. Wes scowled into his lap. He didn't place a bet. After some erotic shenanigans with a pair of bolt cutters, the reappearance of the dental drill and a final flourish, a jigsaw, the unwilling volunteer was sawn in half. Blood spatter coated the two-way mirror, obscuring the view. Wes checked the clock. 1812. Three for three. Well, shit. If he could unlock his own ability to see this kind of -of run-of-the-mill stuff, he wouldn't need the soothsayer. Ricky would be utterly redundant. Oh, sure, yeah, the little sod could see the secrets of the cosmos, all that crap. So what? No one wanted to know that bollocks, did they? He'd made a couple of million sitting on his ass just now for writing down four numbers in the right bleeding order. Who needed Ricky Porter? That was great, he said, faking enthusiasm like a champ. Let's do dinner next weekend. I'll come to you if you want. Lucy wrinkled her nose. I'm a bit busy. Me too. Wes sighed as the others around them started leaving, ushered out by security. Yeah, thought so. We'll do something you fancy doing later then, is it? The bitterness was missed, along with the sarcasm. Do we need to drop you home? Lucy asked, checking a handbag. Or is it okay to drop you near where we picked you up? Don't go out of your way. This too was taken at face value. He only realised he was not sober enough yet when he stood up and the room spun for a moment. He sat down heavily and waited for his sisters to sort themselves out, lip glosses and purses and whatever else they'd been comparing strewn all over the table around their plates and glasses. Come on! Kirsty shot over her shoulder, halfway to the door. Wes blinked. How had they got over there so bloody quickly? Shit, 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 he thought. I'm fucked. No, I'm all right. Charlie's going to kill me. But he could take the water with him. He had a while yet. What was the time? Probably plenty of time. He levered himself more carefully upright, testing his balance. Yeah, piece of piss. Sober as a judge. What was that revelation he'd had just now? Something to do with the soothsayer? He was sure it had been a bloody good idea. No, gone. Never mind. It would come back to him.